0: Pleasure mm. is the measure of your sexual well-being. It's not about how much you crave it. It's not about how often you do it or where or who, with whom or in what position or even how many orgasms you have. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Mm. If you like the sex you are having, you are doing it right.
1: I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, we are going to talk about sex, But we're going to talk about it from a whole different angle. So hopefully you guys know I'm a geek for science and I desperately want to understand the human body as deeply as I can. And science has so many gifts for us. So I recently came across this incredible book called Come As You Are. And it's written by Emily Nagowski. And she is a sex expert. She teaches sex at the university level. And she is an expert in the neuroscience behind sex. So what's so fascinating to me is that when we talk about sex, especially when we're talking about it uh, around menopausal women, is we're talking about hormones and the loss of testosterone and the hormonal changes. But what you're going to learn in this podcast is that your behaviors around sex, your sexual appetite, your experience with sex is not hormone dependent. It is actually dependent upon your brain. And your brain has different messaging that it's dealing with. It has different priorities. And when you learn how to line your brain up, With your greatest sexual desires, you can have an incredible time not only having sex with a partner you've maybe been with forever, um, but you can really redefine sex for yourself. So, on this episode, I bring you Emily Nagowski. Uh, We talked the science of sex, we talked about our attitudes around sex, we talked about um, oh, this was really cool. We talked about our breaks and our accelerators, what causes us to want sex, what causes us to put the brakes on wanting sex, and then stay through to the end. We talk about orgasms and what you need to know about women having great orgasms, men having great orgasms, um, and how we all can take our sexual experiences to a new level and to be have a really healthy and realistic and enjoyable experience around sex, so you, this is going to be a great one. Again, mind blowing. I'm excited to share it with you. Emily Nagowski, and the book is Come As You Are, New York Times bestselling book. I highly recommend you check it out. Hey, Resetters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. Let's start with this idea, but and I can't say enough about your book. I really want my re- my resetters, my audience to know everybody needs this book. Like I'm sure people tell you this all the time. I want to say every woman needs this book, but everybody, it's men and women need this book. It is is that it's probably why you wrote it is because there was no book like this.
0: Yeah, I wrote it because uh, I had been teaching at the college level for a. Two decades, um, and one semester that was really, really intense. I asked my students at the end of it, after all this science, after all this like really hardcore intellectual stuff, just tell me one important thing you learned. And more than half of my 187 students wrote something like, "I'm normal. Wow. I'm normal. Just because I'm different from other women doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me. Yeah, I can trust my body. Yes, I'm normal. Um, yeah. And Reading, that was the last question on my final exam, and I was grading final exams with tears in my eyes, which is not what it's usually like to grade final exams. Right. Um, so that was the day I decided to write Come As You Are, was there was something about this science that granted people access to the knowledge that they are not broken, that they already have. Everything they need to have confident, joyful sex. Yeah,
1: I would say that was my experience in reading your book. Was I saw myself in so much of what you said, and I'm like, oh, that's why. And so it was a, it was very confirming that I'm normal. So that's I love that. You maybe you needed to title it, although the title is great. Maybe you needed to title it, I'm normal.
0: And, you know, there actually was uh, a little bit of kerfuffle at the publisher that the title Come As You Are is not uh, aspirational enough. Right. But it was only the guys who said that because they didn't realize that the most aspirational thing in the world for a woman is the idea that she doesn't have to change, that she already has everything she needs to have sexuality, that it's not that she's broken. It's that she lives in a world that is lying to her every day about what's true about her body, that Mm -hmm. deliberately wants her to believe lies so that she will torture herself in order to conform to somebody else's ideas about what's healthy and normal. Yeah, that's, and
1: that's crazy. And, and I hope I, every woman hears this because I, one of the big things I like to do is let's give women their power back on all levels. But what I see your book doing is giving women their sexual power back and understanding themselves. Do you think that our behaviors around sex, start at an early age. I, I just had the pleasure of interviewing Bruce Lipton and he was talking about how all of our programming gets set by the age of seven. Do you think we learn sex at an early age from society, from what our parents teach us, and it just gets stuck in our brain and then that's our perception for the rest of our life unless we try to change it? Oh, hell no.
0: <laughs> awesome. I mean, like, Great. Some things are... So sexuality itself is an organic, innate part of what it is to be human. Um, the thing I say over and over and come as you are is we're all made of the same parts. We're just organized in different ways. So what your sexuality looks like is different from what anybody else's sexuality looks like. And what your sexuality looks like now is different from what it looked like 10 years ago. Hmm. And it's different from what it will look like 10 years from now. But our sexuality is in place. There's evidence of fetuses masturbating in utero. Crazy. So, like, it's all there, ready to go on the day of our birth. Um, uh, If an infant has a penis, any parent knows that, like, erections happen. Like the mechanism is in place and a lot of learning happens from the day you are born, often before the day you're born. You begin absorbing messages about um, sexuality and privacy and safety and love and pleasure and bodies and boundaries and disgust. And we don't get to pick Mm. almost anything that happens to us from the moment we're conceived until we get to a place of some autonomy in our lives. Mm. And all of those lessons, we did not choose all those experiences. We did not choose for ourselves have an enormous impact on the shape of our sexuality. But the metaphor that I use throughout "Come as you are, is this idea of a garden. I know I'm, it's so original, a garden metaphor, it but works. if you imagine that on the day you're born, you get this little plot of rich and fertile soil. Um, you're this helpless little baby. So you're a family of origin and your culture of origin begin to plant all of these ideas about bodies and safety and pleasure and boundaries and gender and sexuality and safety. And uh, they tend the garden for you. And as you get older, they teach you to tend the garden so that by the time you get to adolescence and adulthood, you have this garden. And Some of us get really lucky with beautiful things and all we have to do is cultivate and harvest and weed. But a lot of us get stuck with really toxic crap in Mm -hmm. our gardens and we didn't choose to have that stuff in there. So it is not fair that we have this job ahead of us of going row by row through the garden and making choices about what we want to keep and what we want to throw on the compost heap to rot and replace with something that we choose for ourselves. But it's an opportunity that we get to do this work of examining what we were taught about sexuality and what we want to hold as true for ourselves. That if you like what you got planted, keep it great. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to, my job as a sex educator, especially as a sex educator whose real job is to bring the science, is to say, here's what science has to say. I know it contradicts everything you ever learned ever from your uh, religious institutions, from your family, from your culture, from media, from even like doctors, but here's what the science says. And you get to pick what feels like a good fit for you.
1: And is it? do you think it's hard? So, you know, like a lot of women that I talk to over 40, you know, your sexual, um, your behaviors around sex are sort of already solid, and you already have so much patterning. Is it easy to change? I mean, I there were a couple of things I want to chat with you in your book that changed it pretty darn quickly for mm-hmm. me and how I looked at like libido. But uh, do you think it's an easy mindset for us to shift once we understand the science of sex?
0: I various, like, again, we're all the same parts organized in different ways. Some things are going to just release really easily. And some things are going to be stubborn and require a lot of work and make us wonder if it's worth it. I've been doing a lot of removing of wallpaper in my hundred year old house lately. and oh, there's Oh like, no, layers I've done that. There. Oh, i am done that layers. Some Horrible. of those layers come off real easy. They just peel right off in big chunks. And you're like, "Huh." Ah! I am free. And then yes. other pieces that you got to use like tools and solvents and elbow grease and like it is stuck. And there are times when you're like, does it really matter if I do this? Why don't I just leave my walls this way? Yeah. And I think changing our ideas and behavioral patterns around sexuality can be like that. Some of these things, we come free really easily and we are so ready to stop beating the crap out of ourselves Mm, and getting permission to do that is like, good. I'm all set. I'm done. And with sexuality, a lot of the times we're not the only one involved. So (laughs) you might learn something. So for example, with sexual desire, you learn that uh, responsive desire is just as normal as spontaneous desire. You present this to your partner and uh, they're like, well, that's all well and good, but I want you to want me out Mm. of the blue. And Mm. now you have to take not just your own sense of freedom that you're not broken into account, but also the fact that your partner grew up with the same myths and lies that you did about sexual desire and help them get free so that uh, they can welcome and embrace your sexuality just as it is and still meet their needs and help them feel as loved and desired as they deserve to feel.
1: Yeah, so well said. One of the biggest ahas I had in your book was this concept behind the accelerator and the brakes. And I really want you to dive into that because... Again, our audience—you um, know—a lot of them are menopausal women that are going through changes hormonally, libido's down. They're not feeling great about themselves, and they've been with a partner for a long time, and maybe there's some mismatched desire there. So I, that was a huge part of your book that I just was like, I wish somebody had told me, like at 20, that this concept of the accelerator and breaks. So can you talk about that?
0: I felt the same way when I learned it and I was 22. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. I wish I had learned it then. Yeah. The the most is, and it's the most basic thing because the starting point with the idea is imagine that sexuality works in your brain the same way every other system in your brain works, which is as a coupling of uh, an excitatory system or an accelerator and a inhibitory system or a break. So the, it's called the dual control model. And uh, the dual control model means there's two parts. The excitation system, which is the accelerator that notices anything sex-related in your environment. This is everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or think, believe, or imagine that your brain responds to as a sex-related stimulus. And it sends that turn-on signal so many of us are familiar with. And it's functioning all the time, including right now below the level of consciousness. Here we are just talking about sex. And so you get a little tiny bit of accelerator signal that you're probably not even aware is going. And at the same time, your brakes notice every potential threat in the environment. All Mm. the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything that you see, hear, smell, taste, touch think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. It sends a turn-off signal. So the process of becoming aroused is the dual process of turning on the on's and turning off the off's. And why this is so revelatory is because most of the sex advice most of us hear most places has to do with adding stimulation to the accelerator. Like, watch porn and do role play and lingerie and candles and corsets and like all the things. And those are fine. If you like them, go for it. And it turns out when people are struggling with desire, arousal, orgasm, pleasure, it's rarely because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. It's usually because there's too much stimulation to the brakes and all kinds of things can hit the brakes. Stress. (laughs) Does anybody have any stress? Just a little, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Body image. Anybody? Yes. Trauma history. Relationship conflict. um, Being raised taught that sex is dangerous, dirty, and disgusting. Anybody? Yeah. A lot. All that stuff hits the brakes. Some things are really easy. Like uh, if you're distracted by grit in the sheets, you know what? Just change the sheets. Mm. Classic cold feet, literal, just cold feet, They actually have done studies. So when people want to know what happens in the brain with orgasm, you have to have people have orgasms in a brain imaging machine. And there was a researcher who found that he could. And even the people who volunteer for this study struggle to get to orgasm in the very unsexy context of an fMRI machine where it's cold (laughs) and there's noise and there's people watching you and there's a lot of pressure. Um, but this researcher found that he could uh, double the rate of successful orgasm in an fMRI if he let his subjects uh, wear socks what they had cold feet literally cold literal cold feet you uh let a person wear socks their feet are less cold uh their cold feet are no longer hitting the brakes and it frees up their accelerator to do what it wants to do.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: So some of these things are really so... I have a friend who I told that story to and she was like, I get cold feet all the time. <laughs> so she, her, her partner happens to enjoy the sort of like thigh high kind of look. So she got wool thigh highs. Oh, my gosh. So it was, it was an activator of the partner's accelerator and uh, helped prevent something from hitting her brakes crazy. Some of them are really easy to fix, the things that hit the brakes. Other stuff, trauma histories, Mm. uh, sex negative, cultural messaging, um, those things take more time and effort and therapy sometimes uh, in order to Mm. loosen them up from the break.
1: I'm laughing to myself because you know what will happen is, you know how many people are going to listen to this podcast and start to put socks on and see what happens? Right. (laughs) So, okay. How do we decide, how do we determine what, because, so my takeaway when I read that part of the, of the book was exactly what you just said, which was, oh my gosh, I think that there's more breaks going on in my life than a lack of an accelerator. So then I was like, okay, what are the breaks? And what how do I need to identify it? So if you're listening to this, you're reading your book, I think the first thing that would be helpful is for people to understand that there is an accelerator and a break. Right. Like that was like there's a break. <laughs> And then please tell everyone. Right. That's why no, that's I was like highlighting it. I, I was telling everybody. Um, but how do you know what your breaks are? How do you know what slows the accelerator down? Like, is there a process we can go through to discover that?
0: Oh, there are so many different ways. Sometimes you're gonna have just like an immediate intuition about like I know for when I'm when I'm stressed, when I'm worried about being interrupted, when I'm feeling dissatisfied with my body. If there's still dishes in the sink, if the laundry isn't folded yet, um, if the lights are on too bright or if there's no lights on, like people have a sense of like, I know that no matter what else, if this is going on, like this is going to be a thing that hits the brakes. Um, One of the strategies you can use is to think through three spectacular sexual experiences you've had. If you've had three spectacular sexual experiences and three kind of like, meh. Sexual experiences. There's worksheets for this in the book. There's also a come as you are workbook that has oh, even sweet. more worksheets for thinking through like what activates your accelerator and what hits your brakes. When you do, and I really recommend like, don't just do one, but do three because that's how you begin to see mm. the patterns. Mm. I have a friend who did this. Um, she was in a long-distance relationship. And you know, when you finally get to like get together with your long-distance relationship partner. She, there's kind of an expectation that you're going to have the sexy times. And it turns out for her, the feeling expected or obliged to have sex really Mm. hit the brakes for her. So much Mm. so that she ended up experiencing a lot of pain with the sex they were having. Wow. Yeah. So I was like, yeah. So what you do is you take sex off the table. I know you're in a long distance relationship, but when you get together, you can do all kinds of things, but you got to set limits around like this person does not get access to my genitals because the idea that I am obliged to provide my genitals to this person I love makes it impossible for my body to experience pleasure from that contact. Um, So, and she only figured that out by doing all three great experiences and not so great experiences so that she could see what the pattern was. So some of it is going to be really intuitive. You'll know right off the top of your head. And some of it you can discover by thinking through the great experiences where the accelerator has been off the wall, off the charts, and your brake has been just just totally free. Uh, And then the other experiences where like maybe the accelerator was doing just fine, but the brakes were on. Like if you try to drive somewhere with the brake on, you, you, you maybe get where you want to go. It will take a lot more gas. It will take you a lot longer and it'll be a lot more frustrating. Right?
1: Right. Right. So I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, so sex is really more about the brain than it is about our genitalia. It is
0: entirely about our brain. Ask anybody who has a spinal cord injury with no sensation below the waist. Interesting. They can still orgasm. Oh yeah. Many people. Not everybody, Amazing. but many people. Yeah. So if and we want studies on like, what are all the different ways that people uh, masturbate or have sex and experience orgasm with a spinal cord injury at different levels and in different places in the spine. Crazy. Because it's Crazy. not about your genitals. It is about creating a context that allows your brain to interpret any sensation as sexy. Amazing
1: so if i'm if so if a couple let's say is having bad sex i mean or just they're not finding their synergy with sex I, I think society's taught us well maybe your guy's not doing the right thing maybe like the the mechanics of sex is wrong but what i'm hearing from you is let's not worry about the mechanics right now let's go up to the brain and look at how the brain is either warming up or slowing
0: down for sex would that be accurate i think we actually look even further out. We look at the context that is stimulating the brain. Okay. So um, there's a wonderful sex researcher and therapist named Peggy Kleinplatz in Ottawa, who studies people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex, like life-changing sex that like deepens their sense of connection with the eternal divine. Like, Amazing sex. Um, and the questions are one, what does that sex look like? And two, how do you become a person who has that kind of sex? Right. And then how do you declare it like that? That's pretty impressive. Yeah. How do you show up at a research study and talk about it? Um, so the first thing I want to say is the typical age at which her research participants, dozens and dozens of people she researched, the typical age at which they had their first experience of extraordinary sex was 55 interesting so like awesome and that's just like the typical age there were people who had a younger and people who had it much older and a lot of these folks were in like long-term monogamous relationships so context that in our culture we sort of categorize as being sexless or low in eroticism doesn't exist I, i mean people vary tremendously and the kind of context that they're able to create. So the first question, uh, what does this great sex look like? Turned out to be one of the most important questions and what Peggy as a therapist began saying to her clients, the most common reason people seek sex therapy is for desire differential, low sexual desire, low sexual satisfaction, low sexual frequency. Um, and she would say, so, uh, Tell me about this sex you don't want. Mm. right? because okay. if you come in with low sexual desire and you desire you describe you describe a sex life that is frustrating, low pleasure, low connection, dissatisfying, of course you don't have desire. Why would you desire sex you do not like? Yes yeah the way Peggy sense. asks it is what kind of sex is worth? wanting. One of the reasons you do the like three great sexual experiences exercise and the three meh sexual experiences exercise is to figure out what kind of sex is worth cordoning off space and time in your calendar, preparing for, grooming for, trimming your nails for, stopping doing all the other stuff we could be doing. Some of us have kids to raise. Some of us have jobs to go to. Some of us have family members to pay attention to. Some of us have other friends we want to see. God forbid, sometimes we just want to watch a movie and then go to sleep, right? Like we have, we're busy. There are so many other things we could be doing. What kind of sex is worth not closing the door on all that other stuff and just doing this, frankly, slightly wacky thing That we humans do of rubbing our skins together. You got to really like and trust somebody. Yeah. Well said. Right. So the first question, how do, uh, what does this great sex look like? Desire is not a significant part of the formula. These are not people who are like horny and constantly can't wait to put their tongue down their partner's throat. They're people who decide that it matters enough for themselves and their relationship to create time to prioritize sex. And if the sex you are having is, as Peggy puts it, dismal and disappointing, of course you're not going to prioritize sex. And God knows there are times in our lives when sex is not at the top of the priority list. If you have a brand new human living in your house, that is not a time when sex is going to be really important. If uh, you are in the middle of healing from Chemotherapy, because you're in treatment for cancer, that's maybe not a time when you're going to be feeling at your most erotic where sex feels really important to your relationship. What's going to feel really important in your relationship is just a sense of like mutual support and connection, which can express itself physically, but might not show up as eroticism. If you're experiencing big changes in your body because of menopause, for example, you might be like, like really working with the material of menopause of the ways your body is changing, um, of the meaning that comes with those changes Mm. and trying to find a path through those changes to a sense of the erotic as it lives inside your body. That's all normal. And Sexual desire is a byproduct of caring enough about sexuality to find your way to it. Amazing. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: So here's what I'm thinking, because I I can't tell you. I mean, I'm sure it's probably different when you walk around the world as a uh, a sex expert. um, But I would say that most ladies' nights out that I have with my girlfriends – That the topic of sex comes up and then the topic of mismatched desire with their partner comes up. And so what I'm thinking as you're talking is like, okay, if the it's perhaps one of the most important questions is what is what would sex look like to be want me to stop everything to Mm -hmm. have sex with you? how would we have that conversation with our partners? Because it does seem like men are, and this could be a a cultural thing, but it seems like men are ready to go all the time. And women need, have a lot more accelerators and brakes. This just, I mean, they have more issues with that. This might just be the group of people I hang around, but No, it's culturally taught to
0: us. It's absolutely taught to us from the beginning. Like if you're born with a body that makes all the adults around you go, it's a girl. You get handed a user's manual for that body that teaches you that sex is dangerous, dirty, and disgusting. Um, That it is a favor that you give to men. That it is something you perform for men's pleasure. Like there is no script of eroticism that comes with, growing up as a girl and woman in modern America, for example. But, so an example of this, uh, there's a woman who read Come As You Are and tweeted me the story of watching her adult brother changing his baby daughter's diaper. And so she's all clean and he goes and gets the clean diaper. And when he comes back, this little baby is touching her vulva. And dad's reaction is, uh-uh, don't touch that. Mm. What? <laughs> How, how would he have responded if uh, his baby had been, had a penis instead and had been, like, touching his penis? How would he have reacted if his baby had been touching his her feet? Don't we love it when babies yeah. find their feet? Crazy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Their it's a really good point. So this is a moment that this child is not going to remember, but it will accumulate in her brain with countless other similar moments. So that by the time she reaches adolescence, there will be a black hole where the neurological representation of her genitals should be because she's been taught that that part of her body does not truly belong to her. It is not hers to control. Those are not sensations she is allowed to experience. And when people like me come along and say, just tell your partner what you like, she will not know what she likes because she has never had permission to explore what pleasure feels like in her body. Wow. So it's, and that's cultural. Yeah. There might be part of it that's biological, but we can never know the extent to which any of this is biological until we do, like, a controlled experiment where people of all genitals are raised with the identical messages around sex and sexuality that everyone has permission to, like, experience all the pleasure afforded by their body and everyone has full basic bodily autonomy over how and when they are touched and how they get to feel about their bodies. Let's do that experiment. Yes, please. Let's raise all children that way and see... If women end up wanting sex a whole bunch more, liking sex a whole bunch more.
1: Yeah, that would be amazing. So how do couples start that conversation? So I'm like putting myself in the shoes of I'm a 45 year old woman. I'm listening to this podcast and I'm going, oh, my gosh, I need to communicate to my partner I yeah. just had a huge aha. And, and yet sometimes that communication around sex is very uncomfortable, even in intimate relationships. Sure. So now we they could get your workbook and they can work that together. What else could they do? How do you start that conversation with your partner? And so that the because there seems to be like hurt feelings, like if you go and you're like, hey, you know what? I'm not getting the most out of sex. I'm not really enjoying it. Therefore, I don't like it. The, you know, a lot of the partner might be like, oh my God, forget it. We're oh, yeah. I'm totally hurt now. Let me go lick my wounds. How do we have a better conversation with yes. partners around this? We
0: are all so fragile around sexuality. We are yeah. so afraid to hurt the other person's feelings. We are so afraid to receive a message about any of the ways in which we might be falling short of the ideal. Um, so there are a couple of rules about talking about sexuality that are um not necessarily different from the rules of good communication, but like, amplified in their importance. One, stay solution-oriented and positive. Start with the stuff your partner's doing right. Mm. Start with the things you love about your sexual connection. Start with how motivated you feel to make your sexual connection even better. Start by acknowledging that there's been some dissatisfaction, especially if you feel like your partner is a higher desire person and you know that they wish there were more frequent sex and that you really want there to be more frequent sex too. And you're trying to find your way there, right? So you've got a shared goal. You feel really positive. You compliment the stuff that, you compliment the good things so much you make your partner feel like a superhero for the things that they are doing right. Awesome. Which helps to buffer against the fact that we are so tender. And the first but that you say is going to cut like a knife. I actually recommend you avoid the word but because it instantly just erases all the hard work you did to make the person feel connected to you and like you have a shared goal and things are really positive and talk about what are the great sexual experiences we've had what are like the best sexual experiences we've had what was the context and this is where the worksheets can come in handy because they're sort of like categories of thinking about what was going on like what was uh, your mental and physical health like in that moment? Um, what was your mm. relationship like in that moment? What were the partner characteristics um, that were really at the forefront right then? What was the setting? Were you on vacation far away from your children? Yep. Were you? was it makeup sex? You had just had a big old fight and you were repairing the damage that was done like what was Mm -hmm. the setting um and what were the other just external factors like stress worry about money and family and the capital t capital f future all that stuff break down what was the the kitchen clean right like you know people (laughs) people tell me really good stories and one of the the kitchen being clean and laundry being done those are really big deals um I so date night sex is controversial as an idea, Mm. but it's a thing that can be really effective when you're doing it well, which is to say you're not just like showing up and just doing it because you said you would, but doing it because you show up. And when you do, you really enjoy what happens. You have fun Mm. on your date, Mm. even when that date is in bed. Um, So I was told the story of like partner A is lying in bed you know, naked and ready. Like it's five minutes after, can we just, can we just do this please? Um, And partner B comes on upstairs carrying the basket full of the last load of laundry naked and uh, starts putting away the laundry seductively like, oh my gosh. Here is your t-shirt. I'm going to hang your t-shirt up in the closet on a hanger like you like. It makes no sense to hang up your t-shirts, <laughs> but I'm going to do it because I know that you like it. Like bending over seductively to like pick up the, and fold the towel. Oh my God. Right. So like right? Yeah. there's, there's the phenomenon of chore play. Yeah. That's real for everybody. why if it has nothing to do with like the laundry, it's well, sometimes it's the laundry itself. just feeling like finally something got taken care of and I didn't have to do it. But also the feeling of like we are a partnership. This person knows what my needs are, recognizes that mm. worrying about this stuff is a distractor that keeps my brakes mm. on. and if they can just get rid of this, they can free up my brake and my accelerator is going to be ready to do everything that it wants to do.
1: So so expressing your brake, what puts your brakes on, seems like that could be, yeah, pivotal for better sex.
0: And when people find out like, oh, there are these really simple things I can do that have nothing to do with sex. It's not about like what your tongue does to the person's genitals or like anything like that. It's really just like, how do you create a context that makes it easy for the person to let go of all that Mm. other stuff? Mm. And often it's like childcare, it's dishes and laundry and being the one who calls the electrician Mm. or like when, yeah. yeah, Acts of service. Yep. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So love language is useful. One of the things in the workbook that's mm. not income as you are is this wonderful work by Petra, Bo, whose last name I forget, and I feel terrible about it, but it's uh, initiation styles. And if you just Google initiation styles, you'll see like a little quiz that you can take, like how do you like to be approached? Mm. What does your partner like to be approached? Because different initiation styles work differently for different people. Some people really love to just be approached directly with language or touch, and other people prefer to be approached in a more roundabout kind of way, less direct. Mm. Yeah. That
1: makes the five love languages also is a game changer for all relationships, knowing what the way in which you like to give love and receive love seems like now that I'm thinking this through and that if sex is a brain issue, not a genital issue, then knowing your partner's love language and, and I'm going to look up that initiation style would be pivotal to better sex. Mm -hmm. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit DrMindy.org and use the code PS60PELS.
0: The simple things can make such a big difference if we are willing to let go, like we all have this Mm. script in our mind of what we're supposed to like and how initiation is supposed to work. And like, why doesn't this person like this? And why don't I like the thing I'm supposed to like? Mm. If we are willing and able to let go of the script and just turn toward our sexuality as it is right now, turn toward our partner sexuality as it is right now and work with what we've got that is when extraordinary things happen in people's sexual connection.
1: Amazing, amazing. Okay, so let's dive into orgasms because you have a whole chapter on orgasms that again is fascinating. So uh, my first thought is, um, well, I have a lot of thoughts on orgasms, but the first one would be, do men and women have different orgasm differently? I mean, you have different body parts. No,
0: they don't, okay. Because orgasm orgasm is not a genital function. Orgasm happens Ah. in your brain. Okay. Which is why we need people to masturbate to orgasm in an fMRI machine. Fascinating. So we can find out what's going on in the brain.
1: So it's not really mattering where your partner's touching. It matters more with what you're thinking about that touch.
0: Yes. There are some paths that are more promising than others. When a person is uh, currently able-bodied, um, the phallus, whether it's a clitoris or a penis is the most densely enervated place. So the signal from the genitals up to the brain is going to be like the loudest signal, but mm-hmm. it does not matter how loud that signal is from the genitals to the brain. If the brakes are on. Right. And right. it also like, so if having your genitals stimulated activates a bunch of breaks because you've been taught to feel ashamed of your genitals or judgmental or worried about their smell or the sounds they make uh, or the wetness, which is like beautiful and wonderful. And I could get poetic about vaginal mucus Um, or because you have a trauma history so that sexual stimulation is itself activating a sense of a potential threat then it doesn't matter how like skilled in quotes your partner is. If they touch your genitals, that's going to trigger your breaks too. Right. Yeah. Cause so, of the history of trauma. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's about the, So I want to, I want to make sure that I am not saying that you could be able to orgasm ecstatically from any kind of stimulation in the world. Maybe you could, if you were a more evolved person than I am. But like, I have kinds of touch that are like the most efficient for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has changed over the course of my life, depending on different medications I'm taking as I am, I am now perimenopausal. I had my first hot flash at the Orlando airport. It was Ah, I'll send you my book. (laughs) Uh, It's
1: uh, You you can, I'll I'll replace the uh, the favor for what your book's done (laughs) for me.
0: So um, as those things change the way your body responds to touch is going to change too. And especially if you like put a lot of work into loving your body and embracing your sexuality just as it is, and then it changes. Right. And you have to start from scratch loving this new body that you've got.
1: Great. Yes. So, okay. So there, is there a, uh, is this a, a wrong belief that women are more, can can easily get to orgasm better through clitoral st- stimulation compared to vaginal intercourse.
0: Like, yeah, only about a quarter to a third of women are reliably orgasmic from vaginal stimulation alone. Uh, the rest are sometimes rarely or never orgasmic from vaginal stimulation The clitoris really is for most people, the hokey pokey. And it's what it's all about. Yeah.
1: And most, and many men do not know this.
0: Many women don't don't. (laughs) I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. But let's think about why. Why, even though this has been very well established in the research for at least 40 years, why is it this is still one of the questions I get asked most often? Why can't I have orgasm during sex? People ask. And when they say during sex, they mean specifically during penile vaginal intercourse. Why can't you have orgasms that way? Because very few people do. Maybe one in four, maybe one in three women reliably orgasm that way. So so the gift I'm hope that we're giving
1: uh, all women and men, but especially women right now is that desire is, there's a lot more to it. And if you're not orgasming, then perhaps you're not doing, you're not, the desire may not be Uh, you might be having more breaks, not enough acceleration, and you may be trying to have more traditional sex and not looking at the clitoral stimulation as being the door into an
0: orgasm. Would that be accurate? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, the, if, so struggling with orgasm is very common, um, Around 12% of women up to age 28 have not yet had an orgasm to their knowledge. The oldest age at which I have personally met someone who told me the age they had their first orgasm is 77. Wow. I believe that anyone who's interested enough in sex to want to have an orgasm for their own sake is capable of it given the right context, given the right stimulation of the accelerator with enough release of the brakes. And it's that release of the brakes that finally does it. Neurologically, that's the marker. It's not that there's a sudden peak in the accelerator. It's that the uh, brakes go black, like everything else shuts off and it's just pleasure. Right. So when people are struggling, um, masturbation is for most people, like the most efficient way to learn to orgasm and to explore their sexual terrain Uh, what often happens if you struggle with orgasm is you get to a pretty high level of arousal and you start the chatter in your mind of like, I might have an orgasm. Is this what? am I having an orgasm now? What if I have an orgasm? What if I don't have an orgasm? Oh, what if I'm such a failure at this whole having an orgasm thing? And it is all that stuff. Is that, is that activating the accelerator (laughs) or is it hitting the brake? Right. (laughs) So one of the keys, there's a wonder if there's several great books about, um, learning how to expand your orgasmic territory. One of my favorite ones is becoming orgasmic. That's like the classic text. There's also for yourself by Lonnie Barbach. Um, And basically what they say is explore pleasure and drop orgasm from your goals. Mm. Your goal is not orgasm. Orgasm is off the table. You're not allowed to have an orgasm. Your job is to experience pleasure. If you're experiencing pleasure, you're already winning. You're doing it right. Explore a little more pleasure. Explore a little more pleasure. I love that. Think about what the messages are that you have in your brain that start to make noise as your pleasure increases. And have a little conversation with yourself about you, whether you really believe those things or if that's just stuff people told you. Yeah. And you've been carrying it around for decades. Uh, that was,
1: I, I hope everybody listening it, it hears that and implements these things because, you know, I th- as what I got from your book, what I, I'm sure you are, your your mission in life is to help people connect through better sexual um, experiences. So I love that. If If you could go back to your 18-year-old self and you could mm-hmm. talk to her about sex, what would you say to her?
0: it's a tricky question for me because I began my training as a sex educator when I was 18. Ah, okay. So go, uh, well, I mean, well, uh, we so can no, say, but really important things happened in my training. One of the very first things that my teacher said, so we spend all day in training and our homework, she says, is when you get home tonight, I want you to get a little mirror and I want you to go look at your genitals. And I, uh, am a good girl. I do what I am told I do my homework. And so I go home and I get out of the mirror and I have this feeling like I'm going to confront the enemy somehow. And I was not raised in a particularly sex negative home. I was raised in a very like ordinary, regular sex negative home. I had no explicit messages about shame. I just absorbed the regular stuff from the culture. So I don't know why I felt like I was confronting the enemy, but I'm doing my homework. So I take off my clothes and I lie in bed and I use my little hand mirror as a compact from a a foundation makeup case. And I look at my genitals for the first time in my life and I burst into tears because far from being my enemy, my vulva was just this normal part of my body. Like like the backs of my elbows and the bottoms mm. of my feet. And I don't look mm. at them that often, but they're there and they're healthy and normal and part of me. Mm. And I had spent so much of my life feeling like this part of me was an enemy. Yeah, and beautiful. I felt this grief about the ways I had been closing myself off from something that could have been a source of joy and certainly deserved better from me. And that moment when I was 18 years old has been what I return to over and over again, even as I love the research and as I sort of like love being an expert who like knows the stuff about sex. I know that anytime I have a question about my sexuality, I should not, I can't, I'm not going to find an answer in the science. I'm not going to find an answer in a book somebody else wrote. I can only find the answer by turning toward my own body, my own internal experience with kindness and compassion by trusting Mm. it and listening to it. And that's, I feel the same way about like, even though I wrote this hundred thousand word book with all these science things, uh, I know that Other people will only find their way to confidence and joy in their sexuality when they turn toward their own internal experience with kindness and compassion. I see the book as a mirror Mm. through which women Mm. can finally see themselves clearly. Yeah. Oh, so well said. That was
1: beautiful. If, if you were in charge of creating a curriculum for sex education for, for, I'm going to say, well, I guess for girls and boys in the high school years, what would it, what would it include? Uh, I would start
0: with parents. Okay. In what way? So, so Once you get to high school, it's already, like, there's a lot of bullshit already. Yep. Um, And so what has to happen is a normalizing conversation about, like, all the different ways gender expresses itself, about all the ways sexual orientation shows up, about uh, the way some people, depending on their genitals, are cast in the roles of being human beings who are morally obliged to maximize and be their full humanity, and other people are human givers who are cast in the role of giving their full humanity to the human beings, their time and attention and patience and smiles, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, sometimes their lives sacrificed on the altar of someone else's comfort Mm. and convenience. Um, Teenagers need to have individual thought papers and large group conversations about uh, gender roles and about Mm. expectations, about values, what is important to them. Girls, in particular, need to be granted permission and uh, some instruction on how to masturbate and experience what pleasure even feels like in their own bodies. Because man, a healthy, normal thing to have happen is when you get into a relationship, a sexual connection early on with someone you really care about, it is normal and healthy to have a whole lot of your attention go to making sure that person's needs and expectations are being met. That's great. We love that. And when that happens, it means attention is being necessarily drawn away from your awareness of your own internal experience. Mm. So if you're not already really grounded in what pleasure feels like inside your body, then there's going to be no awareness at all of what feels good for you when you get to time with a partner. So masturbation is super duper important. Um, and I would teach parents. So one of my early life stories of my like regular sex negative culture is, I must've read the word vagina in a book at the library because I was driving home from the library with my mom. I was 11, sitting in the front seat. And I just go, mom, what's a vagina? And I do not know what she said, but I remember this big (laughs) flash of like embarrassment and bewilderment and like, so I I didn't know what this vagina thing was, but her reaction told me how I'm supposed to feel about it.
1: Mm. So when we got
0: home, I looked it up in a medical encyclopedia. So there I learned what it was. And my mom taught me how to feel about it. So um, the reason I say I would start with parents is I, when your kid comes to you and is like, what's a vagina? What's consent? How do I know what, if I've had an orgasm, that parent can respond in the same way as if their kid is talking about any other bodily function. Mm. So they don't have that big emotional flash of what? Yeah, amazing. That's how we unintentionally communicate The stuff we absorbed as kids... Right, we pass it right on to our kids without even knowing that it happened. Yeah,
1: amazing. I, well, you need to be the one in charge of the curriculum for sex ed then here in America. So that that would be incredible. I would have done that. Would have been mind blowing to the 16 year old version of me who sat in a sex ed class and was told that you know it's it's all you're you're you have your period and this is what can happen. Here's how you manage blood. You can get pregnant now. Boom, done. Like that's right. the worst sex ed class I've ever. And that's what people are getting if they're getting any of that
0: at all. So uh, the worst ones are where they're actively lied to about like condoms are ineffective. You can get HIV from drinking out of a soda can. Like mm. there are a lot of States in the U S where you are allowed or even legally required to lie to children about their bodies. Yeah. That's crazy.
1: Uh, last question. Cause I know you got to go. And this is when I ask all my guests is that, if you had one message for the world that you could get implanted in everybody's brain, what would that message be?
0: If I only get one, yeah, you only get one. It is. Uh, do you know people believe you more when things you say rhyme? True. <laughs> so I made it rhyme. You ready? Yep. Pleasure is the measure. Pleasure Ooh. is the measure of your sexual well-being. It's not about how much you crave it. It's not about how often you do it or where or who, with whom or in what position or even how many orgasms you have. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Hmm. If you like the sex you are having, you are doing it right.
1: Love it. I love it. That is such a good, that's such a good message. That might have to be the title of this podcast. That was pretty pretty darn good. Well, Emily, I just, I'm so grateful for your book. Again, I, I, we have hundreds of thousands of resetters uh, in my community and I have literally on so many zoom calls, I pull it out. I'm like, you guys have to read this book. You have to read this book. So I'm going to say the same thing here publicly that everybody needs to get your book. And I'm just so grateful that you wrote the book and that you're having the conversation. So, um, where can people find you other than go grab the book?
0: Uh, right now, because I'm in the middle of writing a new book. Oh, God uh, bless I'm you! Basically, nowhere else. And also, it's still the as we're recording, is it's still the tail end of the pandemic, so I don't go places. But if you just Google me, you'll find good stuff. And um, I will be back doing workshops probably in the fall. Yeah,
1: I love it. What's the new book on? Uh, it's a, a book for couples. Oh, great! Yeah. Yeah, this is an amazing lane you're in. So again, thank you for taking the time. I know you got a busy day and I'm just so grateful for you for speaking out. And I am sure we talk about yeah, I am sure our resetters are gonna come stalk you and find you. Hey resetters, I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for all your wonderful reviews and those of you that have left me comments on iTunes. I just greatly appreciate your thoughtfulness and how much you guys are enjoying these episodes. And it, and it seems like you're enjoying them as much as I am enjoying doing them. One of the things that I've learned in just interacting with so many people is that we've really lost the art of deep conversation. And for me, the Resetter podcast stands for having meaningful conversations with people who are thinking about health, about life, about mindset in a way that we may not be getting on social media or in mainstream media. And so I just want to say, give you guys a shout out and just say thank you for participating in this process with me. Because as much as I absolutely love delivering the information to you, I love even more knowing that it's impacting your life. So please let us know if there's anything we can do to make this podcast more customized to you to make it better. We are now officially in season two, and we are working to bring you the best conversations that health influencers have, that mindset changers can give, and to really deliver you something that you're not able to get anywhere else. So from the bottom of my heart, as I always say my YouTube, from the bottom of my heart, I am deeply appreciative of you. I am deeply grateful to be on this journey with you and let's get healthy together.